Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, please join me as I welcome my guest, Dr. Leah Allen, Assistant Professor in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies and English at Grinnell College in Iowa. We are going to be exploring the subject of feminism and how it relates to health. First of all, as a nerdy lifelong learner, (laughs) thank you so very much for being here today. I'm really thrilled that you asked me to, uh, to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to dive in, and I would love to hear about your background, how you became interested in your work. So my background is interdisciplinary. It's between gender, women's, and sexuality studies as a field and literary studies as a field. So when I was an undergraduate student, I actually majored in English and found that I was bringing a feminist perspective to all of the literature that I was reading. And that led me to go on and do a master's degree in women's and gender studies, where I drifted a little bit further away from the literary side of things, uh, but then went on into a PhD in literature and feminist studies. So I was able to bring them together in my doctoral training. The interdisciplinarity of gender, women's, and sexuality studies is intrinsic to the field. Um, It's a lens for looking at objects or social relations. Um, And so my background is really reflects that interdisciplinarity in that I have been trained in literary studies and literary scholarship, but I'm implementing it more at Grinnell and my teaching and in my research and writing in a gender studies environment. Feminism is so complex, but can you define in as a succinct way as possible <laughs> yeah. um, what you believe feminism to be? Yeah. So um, for me, I see feminism as a lens for looking at the world. And so it's a a lens through which we can examine social relations, through which we can examine um, the built environment or um, so including architecture, um, through which we can examine culture, literature, art, music. Um, it's a way of foregrounding gender and its intersections with race, class, sexuality, and other other identity categories when we look at any object around us, including ourselves and our bodies and our intimate personal relationships. So um, that lens is one that's based on noticing the social construction of things that we may have previously thought were natural or biological. Hmm. So along with other movements for social justice, feminism is interested in pointing out the ways in which inequality and oppression are products of our social environment and our our social, political, economic system, rather than related to innate characteristics in individual human beings, right? So where we might um, hear rhetoric around, you know, women are naturally this way, or feminism is interested in denaturalizing assumptions about the biological basis of really any characteristic. In addition, that lens also becomes a tool to take action, right? So for Mm. 
activists or for individuals who are working for social or political or economic change using that lens and seeing inequality and oppression as social enables us to think about how we might change mm. inequality and oppression, right? So if, if it's natural or biological, it's unchanging and fixed. But if it's social, then there's space to change the ways in which we think about individuals in different identity categories. So really what you're saying is that it is can be in a sense of realization, not just theoretical, but then a call to action. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And that those actions, um, feminist activism, uh, feminist actions tend to be informed by an emphasis on um, social realities. Do you have a lot of men come to class? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. That's another one of the great things about teaching at Grinnell is that um, so the there's roughly I think about 1600 students at Grinnell these mm -hmm. days are a little bit off. But and we have between 125 and 150 students take our introductory course every year. So that's almost half of the incoming class each year. It's a, a large percentage, um, a much larger than at many larger institutions. So it's gender studies and an awareness of feminism are part of the student culture at Grinnell. And so all sorts of students, um, men, women, non-binary students, trans students are interested in the field. And we have a, a really great representation of genders in our, in our classrooms. I'm sure you have a lot of stories, mm -hmm. but what has surprised you Mm -hmm. in terms of preconceived notions that students may come into in class and mm -hmm. you see a realization or a shift in thoughts, a shift in perception, yeah. or maybe some expression mm -hmm. of empathy? That's a great question. Since gender and sexuality and race feel so personal to each of us as individuals, mm -hmm. Often students will come in and feel as though there's no way that larger social structures like racism or misogyny or homophobia mm -hmm. could have anything to do with them. They feel that their race, their gender, their sexuality is very personal. And so through the course of the semester, oftentimes students will have really radical realizations about the way that they're formed and the way that they experience the world and how it relates to these larger systems that are out of their control. And that can be so powerful for students to realize what they previously thought of as, as personal or autonomous or separate or individual or even biological or natural is actually part of a larger social system can lead to really kind of a incredible realizations for students. So one exercise that we have students do is I'll, I'll sometimes have students try to think of something that they think is beyond politics or beyond uh, that, that's definitely natural or definitely biological. And students will say things like, well, birth, that's obviously just a biological process. That's obviously just biological and natural. And then um, I'll ask other students if they can think of any way that they might politicize the process of birth. Mm. 
lots of students will have lots of different things to say, such as, um, well, you know, in the U.S., birth happens in in the context of a health insurance um, or a system of health insurance that's distributed inequitably. Mm-hmm. It happens in a context of a differential access to health care. Mm-hmm. Right. And so something that felt very personal or private, they can then put in a more macro level Mm -hmm. um, and realize, oh, wait, there are all these social factors that influence even something that seems really personal and private. The podcast is predicated on the belief that health is multidimensional. We're not just our bodies. It's not just mind, body, spirit either. There's our intellect and our social, and all of those dimensions matter. My Mm -hmm. intellectual and social health were neglected for such a long time that I was suffering. It impacted my emotional well-being. While there was growth, it still didn't allow me to realize my complete potential until now. And that's really what I want to discuss in terms of Mm -hmm. how feminism relates Mm -hmm. to our health. I believe that everyone has Mm -hmm. the right to develop to his or her greatest potential and Mm -hmm. that all of those ingredients are critical to your optimal development in this life. How have you studied the link Mm -hmm. between gender inequality and social status affecting a woman's physical health? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, so um, I, my answer might be a little bit different than what you're expecting. That's perhaps. okay. Um, so one of the areas that I've gotten into researching and that I'm, I'm working on writing a, a book about is the critical cultures within feminism. So the ways that feminists engage and interact and connect with one another, with other feminists. Mm. I'm interested in some of the negative aspects of those interactions. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking back at feminism's second wave, so in the 1960s and 1970s, and looking at some of the more vicious moments in feminist history or really difficult, contentious moments where really prominent feminist writers in particular were at odds with one another almost all of the time. They had ideological disagreements that they turned into personal disagreements as well. And because they were cut off from mainstream sources of support as a result of their feminism, and were likewise then cut off from feminist sources of support and networking as they as their personal relationships became more rancorous, a lot of them led very difficult, isolated lives in poverty, and many of them died quite young. So when we think back on this, the second wave, um, many prominent writers and theorists died um, in their 50s, such as Audre Lorde, who she, she was only 58 when she died. Barbara Christian was 56. Um, Andrea Dworkin was only 58. I don't think you can say that there's that there isn't a connection between their isolation, their poverty, and their difficult relationships with one another. So um, part of what I'm doing in my book is also is telling a cautionary tale for feminists in the present mm. that I don't think this is a productive critical culture. I think that we need to find different ways of having intellectual and political disagreements, even those that are deeply personally meaningful, 
such that we don't alienate and isolate ourselves from alternative sources of support. What are those differences that separate the camps? A major element was um, around including discussions of sexuality and race in feminism. So there were prominent feminists who feared that, prominent straight feminists who feared that if lesbian women were to be involved and to be invited into the movement, then the movement would be um, diminished Mm. in public capacity. And then there were prominent white feminists who felt that thinking about race alongside gender would, again, complicate or confuse the message and felt that it was a mistake to think about race next to gender, to think about the interplay and interconnectedness of race and gender. Then in the 1980s, there was a, a period of time called the um, that's often referred to as the sex wars, debates about pornography in within feminism, and there were very uh, anti-pornography feminists who formed groups and organizations. Andrew Dworkin was one of the prominent anti-pornography feminists. And then there were other factions who were very pro-sex and felt that sexuality could be a site of liberation and enjoyment and empowerment for women rather than a site of uh, violence and fear and victimization. So they had um, some of the most rancorous debates occurred around um, during the sex wars of the 1980s um, when feminists were deeply divided. So we're talking about um, things like anti-pornography groups going to conferences hosted by the pro-sex groups and protesting outside and handing out flyers and Mm. coming to the conference meetings and yelling to interrupt the proceedings so that no one could be heard. The positions that they occupied as so isolated resulted both from the fact that they were really alienated from any kind of mainstream structure. So many of them were not able to get regular jobs. Um, Those who were academics struggled to find teaching positions. It's really difficult to work in a regular environment when you're committed, deeply committed to feminist activism. And so because the feminist analysis that these folks were developing and, and bringing to the world around them led them to be really critical of the everyday forms of misogynism mm. that would that would be in in most institutional environments, including the university, including the educational system, um, almost in every system, right? So. Do you think then that was impacting the their social development or social health? I do. I think that um, when an individual doesn't have uh, mainstream sources of support and yet doesn't have an alternative support network of other feminists or uh, other allied activists working toward a similar goal – then yes, what results is isolation. And in the case of many of the figures I'm studying, including uh, Valerie Solanus, who died um, at 52 of of pneumonia, it it results in just poverty, isolation, and and early death, unfortunately. So I I mean, I think that this is 
something, um, this is a negative side of the feminist critical culture that has um, been built up. I, I, I don't blame these figures for the, the rancor they directed at each other. I see it as part of a manifestation of the systems they were critiquing. They were critiquing really horrible, uh, misogynist, racist, homophobic structures. And so they needed a, a level of, of rancor in their critique. But when they... Um, uh, turn that kind of criticality on each other, it did not go well. I think sometimes when you say the word feminist or feminism, the negative connotation that springs to mind, the negative perception is a very angry, shrill mm-hmm. woman. And why do you think that is? And how do you think we can mm-hmm. help change that perception and alleviate it? Yeah. Well, you know, um, this may be counterintuitive, but I think one way is to embrace it mm. and say, you know what? Um, and there are many feminist theorists who are, who are saying this similar things, such as Sarah Ahmed. But one way is to embrace it and to say, you know what? Um, feminism is opposed to a lot of the structures that we exist in on a daily basis and there is a certain aspect of being um, angry or disruptive or um, not going along with everything being copacetic and and sort of disrupting uh, everyday life as we know it. Sarah Ahmed, who I mentioned, uses the term feminist killjoy, which she means as a a positive term, right? Mm -hmm. That if the joy that we're having is at the expense of marginalized people or is um, at the expense itself, if that joy is itself creating inequities, then yeah, let's kill that joy. Let's be that nagging voice that says, this is wrong. This is incorrect. Stop doing that. Right. So, so one way is to actually embrace that stereotype and reconceptualize it and say the racist, homophobic, sexist world forces us into a position of anger and of killing the joy that results from um, those systems continuing unabated. So let's take that on. And why do you think the woman is still not allowed to be strong and in opposition and angry if she needs to be versus a man who's allowed to yell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that comes down to questions of socialization and um, what's acceptable for people with different gender presentations is mm-hmm. so social, right? And um, it changes historically and it changes geographically. And that's proof that it can change in the future. You know, it's even interesting because I I pay attention to even my own reaction sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed just the way my husband mm-hmm. will phrase an email. He doesn't feel the need to be apologetic. I've noticed in myself, not just myself, other women too, we yeah. tend to apologize very easily. Yeah. 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 I think that that um, just gestures to why feminism and gender studies are so important mm-hmm. because you're describing how your one's life might be completely shaped by one's gender. If you've been socialized to be apologetic and to feel sorry for taking up space and to feel mm-hmm. 
sorry for um, existing and sorry for speaking, that's going to inflect your entire everyday life and all of your interactions. And if you locate that in your gender socialization, Mm. then yeah, your gender is influencing your everyday life and in a limited or reduced way, right? It's more difficult to go through life apologizing for everything. And of course, it will have effects on your sense of self if you're apologizing for existing. And so I think basically, um, you know, you're proving why feminism and gender studies are important. Do you think that you can thrive despite feeling like other in quotes. Yeah. Well, I think if you have uh, sources of support and connection and networks with um, other like-minded people, yes. But I think that being other from uh, mainstream sources of support needs the, means that you need something else. You need some other avenue to access care, to access support, to access um, sociality, really, because any experience of being other in any way is going to be alienating and really difficult. Traditionally, women are caretakers. Are we unfairly burdened by that role if we do not take social status, lack of resources, and environmental safety into account? I think Yes, obviously so. I think um, caring for others and expending emotional labor on maintaining relationships between um, humans is obviously a burden and and takes time and energy away from um, whatever else one might be doing, whether it's work or um, labor for the, the individual. I think that the expectation that that labor be gendered is the burden. Mm. I don't think that caretaking is necessarily a burden in one's life. But if one is required to do that work because of one's gender and it's only associated with one gender and not others, then that is an unfair burden. Yes. Okay. What are some ways that gender inequality and or social status can impact our mental and emotional well-being and even our intellectual health? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think an experience of marginality uh, in any realm or because of any social identity can be really difficult, painful, um, uh, can be really oppressive and, and violent sometimes mm-hmm. even. And I think it's really difficult for any of us to be healthy under uh, white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really hard for anyone to um, be healthy and whole when we live under oppressive structures all the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was thinking of a specific example, too, while you were talking. Statistics that I've read, for example, Mm -hmm. anxiety and depression being higher in women than in men. You see how you could construct two separate stories about that, those statistics and that information. You could say, oh, this goes to show that women are biologically more anxious. And here we have Mm. biological proof of Mm. this gender difference. Mm -hmm. 
her. You could take a feminist lens and a feminist social constructionist lens, and you could say, okay, well, what are the social factors that contribute to anxiety? Um, why might it be that we see more anxiety in women as opposed to men? And that would help you to understand the socially constructed nature of, of uh, health. Is there anything else you can think of that we haven't talked about or you want to highlight? I think I want to highlight that being a feminist, uh, being a feminist writer or critic or activist or feminist social activist can be a very alienating thing because you are constantly critical of the culture that surrounds you. You're critical of even the family in which you live and exist. And so it can be a very, an experience of separation from everything that surrounds you. And that can be really lonely and really grim in a way. The research that I've done into the critical cultures of the feminist second wave has shown me that that kind of critical relation has to stop somewhere and you have to have some allies, some community, some networks of like-minded individuals supporting you. So I would encourage um, solidarity as much as possible um, from a position of marginalization or exclusion uh, from the broader mainstream culture. So what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? We are all negatively impacted by racism, bisexism, misogyny, homophobia, ableism. I think that all of those things really limit our full capacity to to be healthy. And at the same time, they also define what health is in um, a really rigid way, too, so that those of us who have different abilities are are automatically defined as unhealthy or um, what health is. Here's something that I've heard from people I've talked to about feeling isolated or whether it's because of gender, whether it's because of race or class um, and the bigger social climate. Mm -hmm. I can only control my Mm -hmm. little universe. That's where I'm going to Mm -hmm. um, spend my time and energy. What would you say to someone like that? I would say your little universe is completely defined and Uh, determined by these larger social systems and structures. We can't even necessarily extract ourselves or we can't extract ourselves at all from these broader social forces and from the ways that we're formed by culture. I would say, well, two things. One, I would say a, a reassuring thing might be to say that when you're focusing on your personal conditions, you are also focusing on larger political structures. So if you're improving your position that has a larger impact, right? So that is maybe more reassuring, like, yes, you're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. But then I think I would, what I would also say is that we, we are not in isolation from one another and are, uh, we're completely interconnected and interdependent, both as we resist and as we're impacted by larger systems. Thank you very, very yeah. much for this conversation. It was wonderfully enlightening. Oh, great. Uh, I feel very educated today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's been great to talk about these subjects. And now it's time for practical tips. Mind, body, spirit, 
social, and intellectual. I will sum it up with a quote by Jane Goodall. Every individual matters. Every individual has a role to play. Every individual makes a difference. Thanks for being here. See you next time.